Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So here's a joke I feel like a stereotype for telling. What is a gay horse eat? I don't know. Hey. (laughs) You're laughing. You're laughing. (laughs) I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Tobin Lowe, filling in for Rico Galliano. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Tobin Lowe of the Nancy podcast, which is about LGBT culture. And it is excellent, so you should check it out. Thanks for filling in while Rico is... God knows where, doing God knows what. Oh, I'm so excited to see how this show works. You know, it's funny you mentioned the word work because I've kind of arranged things so we won't have to do too much of it. Interesting. How's that going to work? Check this out. Well, before Rico left, he interviewed Denis Villeneuve. He's director of the new Blade Runner film. Uh, Also, my producer James Kim spoke with comedian Joel Kim Booster about a time he bombed on stage. So we'll hear that. And my other producer, Krista Ripple, always wanted to do a food segment. So I told her to go for it. Huh. So what does that leave for us to do? We get to play hooky on the streets of New York. Excellent. (laughs) Wait, but don't you always start the show with small talk? I thought of that. Hi, this is Rayhan Armancy. I'm the editor of Topic, a new storytelling platform. I'm not sure why Brendan asked me to leave a voicemail for small talk this week, but here goes. I think you guys will dig this. I'm going to be talking about pigeons in Paris. So... Paris has a pigeon problem, like a lot of cities, and a mayor of a uh, the 10th arrondissement came up with a solution he thought would be really popular, where he would get two hawks and three falcons to scare off the pigeons for a period of some weeks. This did not, however, go down with the Parisians at all. A petition has been started with over 20,000 signatures to halt this anti-pigeon activity. Although it's not quite clear that the citizens love pigeons so much as hate this plan. Um, It's pretty costly. On top of costing a lot of money, this plan apparently would risk scaring the few remaining sparrows in the city. And uh, there were some defenders who claimed they might, quote, die of stress due to the birds of prey descending on them. So this program was supposed to start next week. But for now, it seems like Paris's pigeons are going to be safe from hawks and falcons. All right, that's it. Let me know if you need anything else. Um, I'm w- weird. I'm looking out the window right now, and I see someone who looks a lot like Brendan going into a bar. Anyways, okay, bye. Welcome to Manicures and Martinis. Thanks so much for having us. This is already so luxurious. Right, Tobin? We can kill two birds with one stone here, I figure. I'm getting a drink. I'm getting my nails taken care of. It's wonderful. Because we're at work after all, so we need to really be efficient with our time. <laughs> the best work day I've ever had. So can you tell us your name? My name is Betsy. So how are, how are our nails doing? I have to say, Tobin's nails are impressive. What? And there's always room. Oh, there's always interesting. room. And, and, they, and they're both great. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess that means uh, Tobin doesn't need to get his nails done as much, so you can pay for this round. Ah, uh, it's on me. It's on me. <laughs> All right. Generous of you. Okay. So, Tobin, are you old enough to remember the Blade Runner movie? I mean, it came out before I was born. Of course but it did. Of course I know it. <laughs> I know it. I know it. All right, yeah. It's the Ridley Scott movie. Exactly. Directed by Ridley Scott. It was set in the dystopian future Los Angeles of, like, 2019. Starred Harrison Ford as Blade Runner, a cop who would hunt down rogue replicants. Yeah, which were, like, these robots that looked like humans. Do you, do you know Blade Runner? One of my favorites. All right. Well, yeah, so basically they're coming out with a sequel called Blade Runner 2049, which you've probably seen the ads for. Mm -hmm. And it comes out this week, and the new film takes place 30 years later, 
and Ryan Gosling, not Harrison Ford, plays the replicant. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve, who uh, directed like Sicario and Prisoners, these kind of grim police thrillers. Mm-hmm. And he most recently uh, did the Academy Award nominated Arrival. Oh, with Amy Adams. So yeah. I loved it. Yeah, saw it on an airplane. Uh, but luckily, before leaving for vacation, Rico met up with Denis at a press day for the film in a Los Angeles hotel, which is why we can have manicures and martinis. Say thank <laughs> you to Rico. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Rico. And they first talked about Denis' memories from the original Blade Runner, released back in 1982. The first movie blew me away. I mean, it blew my mind. It's the movie I saw the most in my life for a very specific reason. It's just that the movie happened to open and a few years later, it was the the birth of the VHS technology. So you could own a movie yourself, you know, like a book. That was a revolution for me. So you like just watch the tape over and over again. Exactly. I remember how powerful this idea was for me that I didn't need to go to the theater or uh, to wait for months for the movie to be shown on TV. I could watch the movie when I wanted. I watched that movie so many times. How old were you? About 14. And I remember the impact, the aesthetic impact of the movie at the time. One thing that was very strong in the first Blade Runner and that I had not seen before was this idea of stratification of time. You felt the past in the in the future, meaning that you, you could walk in the street in Blade Runner and see a car from the 80s in front of you or you could see a computer in the old-fashioned television side by side. This idea that, like, in reality, the past was not totally erased it was so brilliant. So then they come to you and tell you that you're being courted to make the sequel for this movie that has such an impact on you. What was your first reaction when you heard that? It's the, the story started a bit earlier. One day I was doing a movie, Prisoners, and uh, Andrew Kosova and, and Broderick Johnson, the producer, were suddenly they stopped the meeting and said, we apologize, Denis, but we need to start another meeting because uh, Ridley Scott just arrived. And just before the closing the door, they said, we're thinking about making a sequel of Blade Runner. Bang! <laughs> and I was like, what? For me, it was like, oh, wow, what a fantastic bad idea. What an insane idea. What? Why, why, why did it seem so crazy to you? Because the first movie, for me, was like, is a, is a kind of masterpiece in its own genre. There's things like that you should leave alone. I mean, it's like, let's face it. In the history of cinema, there's not a lot of movies, sequels that have done well. I mean, not at, I'm not talking about box office, I'm talking about the result, you know. Sure. There's The Godfather, that was a very strong uh, yeah. sequel. There's like... A, Jaws 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but why, you know, why you will do such a thing? But my uh, mind changed when I read the screenplay. Um, I don't want to do any spoilers. And in fact, I've been warned that if I give any spoilers, I'll, I think I'll be killed. So I'm just going to ask in general... One of the main themes of this movie is talking about technology. And I was trying to figure out what the attitude is that you're trying to get across about technology. Because on one hand, there's a plot point involving the world losing all digital information. So uh, mostly what remains is on paper, which seems to be a kind of anti-technological stance. But then you've got heroes who are robots, some of whom are actually you know, more humane than humans, what do you want us to walk away with as far as our attitude towards technology? Um, I think the humility. <laughs> to be more humble with nature and, 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 uh, and the danger of, of uh, walking in that direction. We, we like to play God. We like to compete with nature. And I think that uh, it's not a good thing. I think we should like go back to a more humble relationship with nature. Are you, would you consider yourself maybe tech 
positive? Are you much of a tech guy? I mean, you're in a very tech-savvy industry. I love the the one of the things I love about filmmaking is that it's like a, a dance between very old-fashioned technology and sometimes high-end technology. It's like a, one of the things I'm proud of is that the movie is really like an example of very old film techniques and also uh, things that had not been done before. What's the old-fashioned technique? Well, to build the set, <laughs> to build everything. It sounds crazy today to say that, but that's the first thing that all the actors ask me. Will we, we be acting in front of green screens with green chairs and uh, with green props for six months? We built all the sets, all the buildings, the apartments, the, the streets. We built the whole universe. I tried to have as much real things as possible in front of the camera. We did models for the city. It's a, almost a lost art to create uh, uh, models for a cityscape, miniatures of buildings, you know, but there was always something real in the screen. I know that you talked to futurists a lot when you were kind of designing the world, talking to them about what the future might hold, what it might look like. Is there something that you learned from these futurists that maybe altered the original ideas of the film? No, because uh, what we learned as we were talking with scientists is that we were in the right direction. Which was? But the thing, I don't want to give too much spoilers. From a climate point of view, it's like it was quite nightmarish. <laughs> yeah, climate change? Yeah. Environmental collapse, let's say, is a theme of the film. I would say the first Blade Runner movie is very dark. This movie is downright bleak. And I would kind of use that word to describe most of your films with the exception of Arrival. Why are you so glum? <laughs> but I will say that uh, it was important for me to have sparks of beauty in this world. Too. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult environment, but beauty still exists. People are struggling to bring beauty even in, in, in the trash. I will say all, the, all of the protagonists in your movies, as I'm thinking about it, are kind of struggling to do something optimistic in the face of what seem like crushing odds. Maybe that's the way I feel <laughs> as a human being right now. I'm, I'm worried, but uh, I'm trying to... I don't want to be cynical. I, 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 uh, that would be the end. I, I try to keep hope, even in the darkest moments. Yeah. We have two questions we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, uh, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Um, oh, I became a filmmaker because the, the truth is that I'm not sure uh, what is the answer. It's like I tried to figure out a, a clever idea, but I can't. It's not this kind of like great origin tale. There, I was not visited by uh, any extraterrestrial or I didn't, I didn't see a ghost coming. Uh, it sounds like it wouldn't make a great movie. <laughs> um, let's ask you our second question, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. Yourself, a piece of trivia randomly about the world that you learned. Or something that you don't know. Something that'll kind of blow our minds at a party. Oh boy, um, that's a tough one. Um, Here's something that I didn't know about you until I came here to interview you today. Out in our hospitality room for all the critics, they were showing off the special Johnny Walker scotch yeah, yeah. that is Blade Runner themed. And they said that they created it in collaboration with you. I'm curious, as a filmmaker, what you brought to the creation of a blend of scotch. That was a strange experience. The thing is that first, you, you have to know that in the first movie, uh, the main character played by Harrison Ford is drinking Johnny Walker. And uh, uh, at the time, they had designed a special bottle. It's a Johnny Walker of the future, you know. And uh, all the Blade Runner fans know about that. 
in the first movie. And in the second one, to my great, great, great surprise, Johnny Walker came later saying, you know what? We're thinking uh, to, to make a real whiskey that will go in that bottle. And we would like to create that with you. And there's a man that came to my house and I created with the man, me, that is not an expert at all. Uh, I created a blend that was one of the strangest. And the, that blend needed to be inspired by my movie for, for specific qualities. Does it have the first thing I think of when I think of Blade Runner is like smog? Yeah, that, 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 the smokiness, you know, there was an essence that represented smoke. Filmmaker Denis Villeneuve speaking earlier this week with Rico Galliano. Blade Runner 2049 is in theaters everywhere. Now I just really want some scotch. <laughs> well, you're in the right place. <laughs> if I get scotch, though, it'll mess up the alliteration, like martinis and manicures. That's right. Well, what about scotch and skipping work? Do you think we could get a new day here? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get scotch, but then we finish up. I, I kind of want to go to a movie now after hearing that interview. Sure, but, like, don't we have more work to do? We keep going on about work. That's why we have producers. So okay. later we've got James Kim interviewing a comedian about what it's like when a joke totally fails. And Krista Ripple's going to report from a Denver bakery that adds a whole new dimension to the term Rocky Mountain High. Great. Okay, let me just do this. Okay, let's go. You're supposed to say when the dinner party download continues, Tobin. When the dinner party download continues, Tobin. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Tobin Lowe, filling in for Rico Galliano. And these are my junior mints. And these are my silent red vines. <laughs> uh, we are at the Metrograph Cinema in Manhattan because, well, Rico's away on vacation. So I thought, why not take it easy this week? Did you grab the popcorn? <laughs> Does my mother notice every time I've gained weight? <laughs> The answer is yes. All right. <laughs> One teeny tiny question while we enjoy the cinema. Yeah. So while we're here, who's going to get all the work done to make this week's DPD show? Good question. The answer is overachieving producers uh, like James Kim, who I actually convinced to create a new segment for us so we can watch movies and scarf popcorn. Genius. Thank you. Yes. James came up with this idea called Double Take. He basically talks to a comedian about a joke that bombed. That never happens to me. Oh. They call me One Take Tobin. <laughs> if I asked your co-host Kathy, would she agree with you? You don't need to bother her. She's mm -hmm. away. She's mm -hmm. on business. Mm -hmm. Just keep going. I had a feeling you are going to say that. All right. Well, here's how this segment works. A comedian, in this case Joel Kim Booster, funny man from New York, breaks down a single joke that bombed and then talks about how they reworked it. So one of the first jokes that Joel wrote was about the time he got this little crimp and curl pony for Xmas as a kid. You know these things? They have like long hair. I think I've seen it before, yes. Yeah. And once he asked for this gift, his mother could no longer deny he was gay. Pretty surefire sign that maybe <laughs> your son is gay. Yes. <laughs> so Joel brought two recordings of this joke. One performed in his early days as a comic in Chicago, and another when he did a stand-up set on the Conan O'Brien show. Heads up for listeners, the Chicago audio is a little rough because it was recorded on an iPhone. It was 1994. It was Christmas. And like every other six-year-old boy, I only wanted one thing for Christmas. The crimp and curl pony. And I got it, ladies and gentlemen. 
I can remember being six years old and sitting at the kitchen table crimping and curling with my dad turning to my mom and being like, what, this is a girl's toy. And my mom turning to my dad and being like, well, you know, Ken, my, my brother Bob, he got baby dolls when he was growing up and, and now he's a pediatrician. <laughs> my dad was like, what do you think he's gonna be, a horse hairstylist? Like, which is a fair question. Uh, and I remember being six years old and sitting at that kitchen table, listening to that conversation, and for the first time, like, realizing what I was, and realizing and wishing for the first time that I could be a, hair, a horse hairstylist. Oh boy. I never wished I wasn't gay. That was the lead up to that joke. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, what? Oh, God. That was really hard. I will say the meat and potatoes of that joke has stayed the same. Yeah. Well, maybe. Oh, wait. Are we going to listen to the we, other one? Yeah, now? we will. In a bit. But okay. with that said, yeah, I can tell within that joke, there was stumbling in there. Um, yeah. And, there's a good joke in there. You yeah. can tell. But it's just <laughs> not quite there yet. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, that last bit where it's the punchline, the final punchline and then you stumble on it. Yeah, that was unfortunate. How were you feeling in that moment? Um, I don't know. I think I probably felt great, honestly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly was so delusional back then. I don't remember feeling poorly about this. I mean, I uploaded it to YouTube afterwards, which I, thankfully, like a year later, I had the good sense to put it on Unlisted and, and thankful, even more thankfully, just saved it in general so we could do this horrific yeah. exercise right now on this podcast. But no, I don't remember feeling especially bad about it. But I will say like the pony joke in its current form is is my favorite joke. And it is the first joke I remember ever writing that other stand-ups that I respected would come up to me after a show and be like, that is a great joke. Wow. And, and that's, it's sort of crazy that I found this terrible clip of it because it makes me less proud of it. So now let's hear the evolution. Four years later, you're on Conan and you tell the same joke about your mom who is in denial about you coming out mm -hmm. and you being gay. And this is kind of the moment where she finally has to realize that you are gay. Um, so now let's play what you did four years later on Conan. I was pretty gay, um, and it was never more apparent than Christmas 1996. I wanted what every little boy in the nation wanted for Christmas. You guys know what it is. The Crimp and Curl Pony by the Cabbage Patch Company! My mom was super cool. She got it for me. I opened it up on Christmas morning. I just started crimping and curling right away. Um, my dad, less enthused, he looked at my mom and he was like, Janet, what the hell, like, why would you get him this girl's toy? This is a toy for girls. And my mom looked at my dad and was like, well, Ken, my brother Bob, he used to get baby dolls for Christmas, and now he's a pediatrician, so. <laughs> Case closed. And my dad, like, rightfully looked at my mom and was like, what the hell do you think he's gonna be, a fucking horse hairstylist? Like, what's the end game here, Janet? And, you know, I, I remember my dad saying that, and I remember thinking, is that a profession? Is that something that I can do? Like, does it require a certificate? Like, give me the full story, Dad! All right! Mm -hmm. There's so much more confidence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you know what's funny? About, I was thinking about this joke and, and listening to the, the differences here. And so my background is in theater. And I was an I was an actor for a long time and a writer and then uh, and then I started doing this and when I did it in Chicago I was so much closer to that world and it's so ironic because the thing that really makes this joke I think click into place for me or made it click into place for me was when I embraced the sort of inherent theatricality of this joke which is there are characters uh, and yeah. I think like adding the cry at the end yeah. was such a pivotal moment <laughs> in this joke <laughs> because uh, you know YouTube comments are notoriously uh, savage and mine are as well but I will say the one thing that saves me from a lot of people's ire is they say you know most of this set sucked but oh. I, that that moment really got me he really tricked me into thinking that he was about to cry on television <laughs> so uh, I will say it saved me but Wow. Um, yeah, I think adding, like, sort of embracing that part of myself and the part that said at the beginning of my stand-up career of being like, no, you, you know, leave the theater behind. You're a stand-up comic now. It was <laughs> a, a, actually a wrong impulse on my part because I think some of my best jokes sort of come from a place of, of theatricality. Joel Kim Booster with DPD producer James Kim. Joel has a new half-hour special on Comedy Central premiering October 20th. And folks, you can hear a longer, more ribald version of that interview in a special episode posting Tuesday? Yes, Tuesday. Sorry, I am reading these notes off an iPhone. We're in a movie theater. Brendan did not want to be interrupted. Butter on that? (laughs) Do I want butter on that? Yes, please. And that, my friends, is the universe telling me that it's time to set up the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Who you call in the universe? Excuse me, sir, I am narrating here. So before he sent me to get popcorn, Brendan mentioned that he had a little chat with his producer this week. I could be wrong, but I think it went a little something like this. Producer Krista Ripple, I possess a company credit card. You possess an appetite for unusual foods. Take this card and return with the food story. Even if it includes air travel and drugs? Sure. Godspeed. You shall tell no one about this. All right. Oh, uh, forget about that last part. Anyway, Krista caught up with Julie Berliner at Sweetgrass Kitchen in Denver, Colorado, to learn how they're operating in this new legal weed era and about a magical thing called canna butter. We don't sell canna butter. Enough, universe. As I was saying, Krista began by asking if she should call the main ingredient pot or cannabis. We like to use cannabis. I mean, it's, it's such a legitimate industry now, and not to say that using the word pot isn't, um, but it has a certain connotation. So we use cannabis around here. Is there a reason why a lot of the ingestibles that you see with cannabis started as baked goods? Well, I don't know why it started with baked goods necessarily, but baked goods are very high in fat content and THC actually binds very, very well with with uh, high fat content. So we started as a can of butter based edibles company and our bodies are, are used to digesting butter. I was also, I was lucky enough to take a little tour earlier and I saw that it's also not just pure can of butter. You mix it with regular butter too. We do, yeah. So we pride ourselves on having 
one of the very highest concentrated can of butters in the industry. And for that reason, what we can do is we use as little can of butter as possible. And then we mix in regular clarified butter into a recipe. And so that minimizes the cannabis taste, but you still get that complimentary aroma. It's just not overbearing. So dosage is a huge deal with edibles. I just saw thousands and thousands of cookies. Like you have to be really, really diligent. How do you kind of do that metric? So we like to think of our product line as very educational. Uh, we have products that are very, very microdose. They're only two and a half milligrams. And then we have other products that are 10 milligrams per piece. And what, what does that mean? Like, I don't know anything about the milligrams. Okay, fair enough. Uh, sometimes I forget. It's so second, you know, it's so into second nature to us that we don't always realize. Um, but there's not a social intuition yet around cannabis edibles. So, for example, one gram of can of butter could have 50 milligrams of THC. So that's like a crazy amount of THC. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you saw during your tour a tub of that can of butter, that makes thousands and thousands of cookies of servings of cannabis um it's far it's a lot we have a italian made <laughs> literally i mean it came all the way from overseas but it's essentially a depositor and it perfectly portions every single product portioning is extremely important for us because you know if one of our cookies is even slightly bigger than another then it's stronger so that's why you see all of our products are exactly the same size I'm excited. So talk me through what we're looking at. Okay. This is our snickerdoodle cookie. Okay. Give me like the teeniest, tiniest. Okay. Perfect. There you go. Thank you. And just so my bosses know that I'm not doing crazy things on the job, can you <laughs> explain what you just gave me? <laughs> so I just cut this cookie so that I'm probably giving you about, I'd say a milligram and a half, like an eighth of a 10 milligram cookie. Okay. And what will this do? I always compare our butter melts, which are two and a half milligrams, to like a glass of wine. It's not like you're going to be over the top or anything, but you f you feel it, you know, you feel like you had a glass of wine. Don't worry, Brendan, I'm, I'm not being reckless. Um, <laughs> all right, here I go. Mm. They're really good. They're really good. This is interesting. I can totally taste the, um, the cannabis. I don't know if I would know that's what it was if someone just gave that to me. Like, I wouldn't say like, oh, that's like that a pot cookie, it. but it's good. It's kind of herbal mm -hmm. and like almost minty in a way. Um, it has like those same kind of tones as mint. What do you have over there? In these glasses, you can find our two and a half milligram butter melts. It's essentially an old fashioned dinner mint. Uh, sometimes they used to serve at weddings. Uh, you can find it at different restaurants. This is a microdose product. It's actually one of my very favorites because you really can't overdo it. Okay, let's try this. Those are really crazy delicious. To me, those are like, the cookies are really good, but I have cookies on the regular. Sure. I don't have things like those. Those are like really delicious. Thanks so much. And you'll love the effect. Give it an hour, hour and a half at most. An hour. I think that's enough time that I can get this back to Brenton. Krista Ripple speaking with Julie Berliner at Sweetgrass Kitchen. Kitchen. That sounds like a good idea. Did you listen to the piece? What? No, I, I totally trust Krista. But, you know, thinking about kitchens makes me hungry. And I do know this great falafel place up in Times Square. 
We should probably get there before the martinis and popcorn wear off. Okay, sure, but isn't there an entire other section of the show we have to make? We don't have to make anything, because the great-grandchildren of Emily Post are going to answer listeners' etiquette questions. Actually, come to think of it, I'll probably have to figure out another segment, but I'm totally going to need a falafel milkshake for that. You know, you got to have fuel in the furnace, so can you just say the line? When the dinner party download continues. Great, let's get a taxi. And what are your thoughts on tahini? Great for flavor, bad for dates. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Tobin Lowe, guest hosting this week for Rico Galliano, who is out on vacation. In case you can't tell from the noise, we are in the belly of the beast right now, Times Square. And speaking of bellies, we're filling them with falafel. And I'm wondering if giant tahini stains come out of dark shirts. They have to. I mean, like, <laughs> tahini is not evil. I hope not. Seltzer water, I'm telling you. Anyway, quick recap. Brandon's enlisted his friends to put together this week's episode for him so that he and I can uh, get culturally immersed in the city. Good way of putting it. Basically slack off. But we haven't run out of stuff to play for you just yet. We're pretty close. Have a little trust, Tobin. Okay, but real talk. Uh In a few minutes, people will hear either a brilliant way to end the show that we haven't figured out yet or a good long chunk of dead air. This is like a super stressful choose-your-own-adventure story. A good point. And one of the adventures involves me getting fired. Look, I'm totally aware. <laughs> but speaking of questionable decision-making, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Okay, but what is your plan for this segment? Well, Tobin, I'm fortunate enough to have friends in high places. We already did the pot segment. No, no, no. I'm talking about Lizzie Post and Daniel post sending up at the Emily Post Institute in Burlington, Vermont. It's the politest place on the planet, and they're etiquette ringers. Anyway, I sent them an offer they can't refuse. Let's hear how that turned out. Hold a second. Is that Rico? What? He's on vacation. That's like a Harry Potter lookalike or something. All right, if you say so. Hey, we got got a little note here. What you got? All right, it starts. Dear Lizzie and Dan, Rico is out of town, and I had something really, really urgent come up, so I've left you guys this week's etiquette questions to read and answer on your own own. Seriously? Since you guys host a podcast called Awesome Etiquette and are the co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette 19th edition, I know you can handle it. Thank you for understanding, Brendan. P.S. If Rico asks, this was your idea. Oh my god. Was that written on a coaster? Yeah, that's a coaster. We do the work and he's not even here. Seriously, that's what it says. Is that rude? Well... Yes, but no, but no matter what, we should not return potential rudeness with rudeness, so maybe we should answer the questions. People do send questions. They do. It would be the polite thing to do. It is the polite thing to do. Let's get to it. Our first question comes from Seth in Seattle. Seth writes, One of the first things I noticed when my now wife and I first started dating was how she held her fork while eating. I am familiar with European and American styles, but she goes with a bit of a caveman hold. Now that we're married and have many years left together, we're in our mid-30s, I think it's worth figuring out how to politely suggest to my wife that the way she has held her fork for her entire life is in fact incorrect and that everyone around her is silently judging her and her barbaric silverware handling style ideas? No, it appears there's a a photo of this somewhere and it should be on the website. (laughs) Seth, I think if you deliver it like that, we're going to have not a very happy next 30 years together. Help Seth out. Give me a sample script. So it doesn't have to be such formal language, but you might say something like, 
Honey, I noticed something, and I realized there might be things like it that I do, and I wanted to give us the chance to talk about these types of things. Do I have your permission to start this conversation, babe? Or honey, sweetheart, Rico's incredulous voice coming in here at this moment (laughs) saying, you've got to be kidding me. I think Brendan would say that. But do you think you are married? Like this couple, you are going to be married probably for another 30, 40 years, I would hope. Do you think this would be a fair thing to try to invite into a relationship? I think you got to go for it. Yeah? You got to try. You got to try. You do it in private. Okay. I like your idea of priming for the conversation. Ask just a little bit. You know, there's something a little difficult, awkward I'd like to talk with you about. Yeah. Is now a good time. The thing that doesn't work is just saying it's just how it's done. Mm -hmm. If you give a whole speech about American versus uh, continental, I don't think that's the argument that's going to win because your wife has been doing this for 30 some odd years comfortably. Honey, I love you. Honey, I love you is a great place to start, Dan. When we're eating (laughs) lasagna on our laps in front of the TV, it really doesn't matter to me at all. When we're out, I would want to know about something that X, Y, or Z. Be delicate with that sample script, but either way, we think that if this is really important to you, then broach the subject. It's worth it. Our next question comes from Laurel in Washington, D.C., and she writes, I played piano for my friend's wedding last year. I was honored, and it was great, but preparing for it took a lot of work. Here's the thing. I still haven't gotten them a gift. I recently confessed this to another friend who suggested that playing music at their wedding sufficed as a gift. Is that true? Have I already done my part? Laurel, yes, you've kind of done your part. That is true. At the same time, you really haven't done it all yet, I don't think. Right. It's not quite going to get there. Nope. You didn't talk about it ahead of time. That's correct. And it probably would have taken that for this to have counted as the gift. Bingo. So I would recommend that you get her a little something. It doesn't need to be a big deal. You have done a lot already, and I'm sure that they appreciate it. I'm sure that they treasure the experience of you participating in the wedding in that way. And that is significant. But at this stage, a little gesture, a little something um, that you approached as an opportunity, not necessarily as an obligation, might be a nice way to round out this whole experience. And in the future, it is perfectly okay for you to ask friends whether they would like this to be the gift to their wedding or just a part of their wedding, things like that, especially if you do do this professionally and usually get paid for it. That's something that it's okay for you to broach that subject with your friends when they ask you to perform at their weddings. You might even say, I'd like to offer to do this as a wedding gift for you. Yes, bingo. Love it. Communication, always helpful. All right, one last question. It comes from Daniel in Vermont. What a coincidence. Dan writes, I mean, Daniel writes... How should one respond when a national radio host asks his buddies and frequent guests to do his job for him? (laughs) Follow up, what thank you present should he absolutely give them? A car. A car feels really appropriate to me for this circumstance. Not bad. A little bigger than I was thinking. Scotch? Car and scotch. Appropriate. We are the experts. There you go, Daniel in Vermont. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, and man, whoever that radio host is really owes a lot to them, doesn't he, Brendan Francis Noonan? <laughs> well, I think I can get them like a 92 Toyota Corolla. Love you, Lizzie and Dan. And here we are, out of segments to play for the audience, yep. uh, in Times Square, and I still think we have some time left in the show we have to fill, huh? Yeah, and I actually have a little surprise I think you're going to like. All right. So you've been leading me all over town today, 
and it dawned on me that the least I could do was take you to a spot that's special to me. All right. And I might just have something in my back pocket that I can share with you. As long as it doesn't require too much effort on my part, I'm totally game. Don't worry, Brendan. You won't even have to put down your milkshake. Beautiful. So here's the thing. We're standing at the epicenter of Broadway life right now, the TKTS ticket booth in Times Square. That's right. This is where people can get discounted tickets to shows, and there are these giant 30-foot-tall red steps where people meet. It's kind of a local landmark. Yeah, this is the one place where I get to be one with my people. Your people. Musical people. (laughs) Screw the stereotype. I love musicals. When I was a kid, I learned the choreography to a number from Chicago, performed it in my backyard. Wow, young Tobin doing an alfresco rendition of all that jazz. You should have seen me. I was (laughs) note perfect. And actually, a story on my podcast, Nancy, that got a lot of listener love revolves around a moment in a musical. So, Brendan, have you seen the musical Fun Home? Oh, yeah, totally. Alison Bechtel, it's based on her memoir. We actually had her on the show once. Yeah, so let's just listen to this track from it called Ring of Keys. And pay attention to the words. Someone just came in the door Like no one I ever saw before I feel... I feel... I don't know where you came from I wish I did, I feel so dumb I feel... Your swagger and your bearing and just right clothes you're wearing Your short hair and your dungarees and your lace-up boots And your keys, oh, your ring of keys That's Sidney Lucas playing the role of a young Alison Bechtel in a really touching scene from the hit musical Fun Home. So Brandon, here's the deal. A radio producer we know heard that song performed, and she reached out to us because listening to that song made her realize that she had that exact same moment as this character. Oh, wow. So her name is Sarah Lou, and she told us that when she was a kid and before she really identified as gay, she saw a gay adult and felt this immediate and powerful kinship with her. Was it her teacher or family member? No, actually, Sarah's family went camping every summer in Wisconsin, and they would always visit this one kind of hip general store. Uh-huh. The woman that ran it was named Mara Katujian. She was the person Sarah was fascinated with. Right. So after hearing this song from Fun Home, it hit her that Mara had been the model for her as a kid without her ever realizing it? Yeah. And when Sarah got in touch with us, we thought it was a good opportunity to see if she could actually find Mara now. Like stalk Mara. Sure, but like in a nice way. <laughs> okay. You can see for yourself, I'm going to play some of the segment. And it begins right at the moment Sarah caught up with Mara again. It's really sweet. Hey! <laughs> wow. How's it going? Look at you. What's up? I haven't seen you in like 15 years. This is amazing. You're so grown up. <laughs> I can't believe it. Okay, well, do you want to go to the studio? I would love it. Awesome. The name of my store was Henry's, and my name is Mara Katujian. The first memory I have of your story is you had, like, a bunch of back issues of Outside Magazine that, like, (laughs) didn't sell because they were old or something. But you're like, but it's a cool magazine. And then you gave me a bunch of, like, (sighs) copies of it. And then I read it, and, like, I still subscribe to that magazine. Wow. And I've read every issue for the last 20 years. So. (laughs) I'm just, I'm smiling ear to ear. (laughs) 
So how would you describe the general store? Oh, I think I had this idea in my head. Grab your backpack, grab an amazing pen, grab a notebook that feels good to you, and go walk outside and write. In my memory, there's this sort of like Northwoods, Norman Rockwell almost, Ooh. nostalgia kind of thing going on. Yes. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of live in this alter ego of the North Woods and snowshoeing and, and skiing and wearing buffalo plaid and kind of the fantasy of the 40s and somebody being in the Adirondacks, although we were in Wisconsin at the time. I was always open and I never hid being gay, but I never necessarily talked about it. It just wasn't, unless it was part of the conversation, there's no reason to. I, did I ever say, I don't remember ever don't, saying anything about a partner. I can't I imagine I would did. have. Yeah, like, it's not like you're like, hi, hi I'm, I'm gay. Welcome to Henry's General Store. I'm a homosexual. <laughs> the pens are over there. <laughs> I've always kind of wondered more about your life. Can I ask you sure. some personal questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell me more about your alter ego? Um, there's always been a part of me, certainly since I was younger, that I liked guys' stuff. I liked guys' clothing. I thought it was much cooler. I thought, why every time I want to buy something does it have to be purple or pink? So I think there was that little alter ego, that other part of me, whether we want to call it androgynous, uh, growing up. I feel very fortunate that I have had that. I get to see kind of both sides and to sometimes be called sir, which still happens. I'm 53, and I'm. it still happens. Yeah, I get sirred also. I look like a teenage boy right now. I'm wearing a yes. flannel. I have very short <laughs> hair and jeans. I've sort of had the same thing. And up until I was probably in my mid-40s, people still thought I was a, a young boy or couldn't quite figure out why I had such soft skin. Uh, and gray hair. <laughs> um, there were those moments when I was little where people would say, oh, your sons are so handsome. And I'd be like, oh, I love that. Right? It was empowering. Yeah. I feel like when I was misgendered as a kid, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. And right. like it embarrassed other people. Yes. I wasn't embarrassed. Yeah. You know. So I used to come to your store mm -hmm. with my parents probably around 1996, 1997. Wow, just when I opened. What are your impressions of me then, or how would you describe 12-year-old Sarah? 12-year-old <laughs> Sarah was so, gosh, you were so cute. I remember you and your parents would come in. I can still see you. You put your hands in your pocket and you dig them deep in. And you'd kind of tighten up your shoulders a little bit, and everything became... Not stiff, but certainly regulated. Your head would be down, but you'd kind of look up at me. It was so sweet. So sweet. And I used to think, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if she'll be gay. And I do my best. This is not how I, I don't go around <laughs> making assumptions, and, and I don't think we, anybody should go around and make assumptions and assessments. However, I was doing with you in that moment what you were doing with me. There was a connection. I think it's just game-recognized yeah. game. And there's a certain skill or, like, art to being a gender-fluid person in the world. Ah, and when you, like, see someone else doing that, it's like, oh, hey. You, you, it looked familiar. So, like, 
in my girlhood, I think it was cool to be a tomboy or encouraged. But like around 12, you sort of Mm. get the message that's not cute anymore. Or like if you're going to grow up, you have to change. And then going to your store where there's this, it opened the possibility of like an adult tomboy (laughs) life that was of personal significance, both the store, but also you as an individual embodying that too. Mm. Being a little awkward 12-year-old gay kid and then seeing a very charming, confident gay adult, it it allowed me to imagine Mm. an adult version of myself, which was huge. But also the layer of my parents thought you were cool. And so that made me think that they would approve of me being gay. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) Do you have any? (laughs) Um, Get up off the floor. (laughs) Thank you. That is the, oh, I am getting choked up. Yeah. Thank you. Ooh. I never knew that I could hmm. it's okay <laughs> that I could actually be a role model for somebody that's pretty powerful that's really powerful so thank you thank you for being that role model <laughs> <laughs> wow it's interesting that I may have appeared confident 20 years ago that deep inside and not at all what was going on i just couldn't seem to find a lot of happiness i was happy on the one hand and yet i can remember feeling like unhappy on the other i think i was depressed and didn't really know it didn't understand it i think i think a lot of what was going on was still not sure who i was i just didn't have the confidence in me I loved my store. I knew that the store uh, represented me. That felt good. I knew how I fit when I rode my bike. I knew how I fit when I was in my canoe. But yeah, there was a part of me that didn't know how I fit in the world. I was just trying to figure this out on my own. And were you the you were the age that I am now when I met you? I was thirty two when I opened Henry's. Yeah, and I'm thirty two now. Wow. Yeah. Wow, yes. Okay, Sarah, (laughs) I think you already know this, or I hope you do. You are going to be okay. (laughs) You are awesome. I look at you and go, gosh, I wish I were that cool when I was 32. That was Mara Katujian and Sarah Liu on my podcast, Nancy, that I co-host with Kathy, too. And you should know the story was excerpted here. You can head over to Nancy and listen to the whole thing. It's a wonderful show. So we did it, right? We're just about at the finish line? Well, almost. It does feel a little strange not to end with a song, because, you know, we do this thing on our show called One for the Road. It's a song that people can listen to on their way to or returning from dinner parties. Right, right. Well, we are on a road. True. And there are music-loving people walking by. Should we just bug somebody? That sounds like a plan. Hello, excuse me. Hi, what's your name? I'm Sarah. Hey, Sarah. So I'm Brendan. We're asking people what they're listening to right now. Is there a song you love? Uh, I'm kind of loving Peace of Mind by Little Dragon. All right. And this song is clean and safe to air on the radio, right? 
I think so. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> All right, here's your one for the road. Peace of Mind by Little Dragon. I hope you're right, ma'am. Okay, that was Peace of Mind by Little Dragon. It's a new single they just released, produced by Raphael Sadiq. And thanks to Sarah for suggesting it. You were right. There are no dirty words. And that just about wraps up our show. Tobin Lowe, thanks so much for guest hosting. For a second there, I thought we were going to have to work, but fortunately, we were able to avoid it. And, you know, maybe we can do this again sometime. I think there's a week in January. Isn't that Rico? Dude. Hey, Tobin. Nice to meet you in person. Hello. Brendan. What are you doing out here? Aren't you supposed to be taping the show? Aren't you supposed to be on vacation? I am on vacation. I came to New York to visit friends. But dude, I stopped by the studio to say hi to you. They told me they haven't seen you in days. Except you came in to grab an inflatable pool or something. All right, all right. It's cool, man. Actually, the show is just about done. Oh. Yeah, all you got to do is read these credits. Wait, what? You can't even read your own credits? Thanks, man. I got to grab a nap and then there's a concert thing. Later. Is this typical? You get used to it. Here, you start. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. This show would not be possible without our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate producers, Krista Ripple and James Kim, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, intern, Emerald Douglas, and our engineer this week was Charlton Thorpe, who got an assist from Daniel Powell and Sarah Bruguer. Special thanks to Tobin Lowe. Thank you. And to all the folks behind the fantastic podcast, Nancy from WNYC Studios. Head over to Apple Podcasts and you will hear dozens of stories just as moving and as funny as the one we excerpted in this episode. Oh, that's nice. And there's lots of stuff in the works here at DBD2. Stay tuned for conversations with Willem Dafoe, Abby Jacobson, Tig Notaro, and Depeche Mode. It's cool. You can take the last line. Bon appetit. Well done. Nice nails, by the way. Thank you.